And it's health naturally for our sponsor, Dennis Stewart's New Lambton Herbal Medicine Centre. And we are going to talk about fever fuels. Damien, you've rung in from Thornton and uh, a question for your mother-in-law on her behalf. Hello, Damien. Hello, how are you? Dennis? Hello. Yes. Hello, hello, Damien. Hello, Dennis. How are you today? I'm well indeed. Oh, that's good. Uh, I'll just get straight to it. My mother, my mother-in-law suffers from a fluid retention, and it, it is uh, bothering her somewhat. And um, she's not probably not able to make the phone call to you today, so I'm doing it on her behalf. I'm just wondering, um, from your expertise, what sort of remedy is available to? Um, for her to take. Okay, Damien, the first thing that you need to know and explain to your dear mother-in-law is that fluid retention is a serious problem and it can be related to serious medical conditions. So um, rather than give um, what I would call simplistic recommendations for what can be a significant medical problem, I'd suggest first up that you visit your GP, get some investigation done. Why is your mother-in-law developing fluid retention. It can be associated with conditions such as heart failure. It can be associated with kidney conditions. Or sometimes it can be idiopathic. That is, there can be no major medical problem uh, causing. It, it can be just a build-up of fluid, so to speak. But it would be not proper for me to recommend a treatment for fluid retention, particularly seeing that it could be related to serious medical conditions. Make sure that your mum-in-law sees her GP to get some investigation because fluid retention can be managed very well within the mainstream. Okay, I understand completely. Thank you for your advice. Thank you, Damien. And thank you very much, Damien. It's 49216216. Your questions uh, are for your question for Dennis Stewart. And why don't we take a look at fever few? You talked well, about that to. briefly last I'd week. I'd love Dennis. to. We didn't get much of a chance to elaborate on it, but listeners should know that over the Christmas period, as I said last week, I was going through some of my books that I hadn't read for some time trying to get rid of some that uh, may not be any use to me any longer, only to find that every one I went to throw out was the one that I subsequently kept. And one of the books was written by an English writer, Ken Hancock. And it's a simple book entitled Fever Few. Your headache may be over. But in that simple book was a mine of information reiterating what I already knew, that Fever Few has a credible and medically investigated ability to address migraine headache in many, many people quite successfully. And yet, the, the, the knowledge pertaining to fever view seems to be not out there as much as it was, particularly in, in all through the 80s and even the 90s, there was an explosion of interest in this remarkable herb, Tanacetum parthenium is its botanical name, and a lot of the interest and fascination was medically based and pharmaceutically based. In fact, the British Medical Journal and The Lancet carried articles associated with the potential benefit of this particular herb, feverfew, in the prophylactic treatment of migraine headache, that is, using the herb as a means of not treating the actual headache when it occurs, but seeking to lessen the incidence of migraine headache. And very interestingly, one of the best references to migraine and its medical use was in fact written by a British doctor, uh, a, a doctor um, 
E.S. Johnson, uh, who wrote a book entitled Fever View, a traditional herbal remedy for migraine and, interestingly, for arthritis. He wrote it in 1984, and he quoted statistics from the University of London which demonstrated that over 90% of people that persevered in the taking of Feverview daily as a medication over a period of two to five years indicated significant improvement. So the information is there, medical information, pharmaceutical information, giving credibility to an old folk remedy that goes back to the old English herbalists Gerard or Gerard and Culpepper and others who used it for, for, for migraine headache uh, under a different name. A folk remedy which in modern times has surfaced and become a sophisticated preparation in capsule or tablet form for seeking to provide some alternative approach to lessening the incidence of migraine headache. People might say, Jane, look, why, why isn't it uh, as well known today as it seemed to have been in, in the 80s and early 90s? My view on this, or my opinion on this, is like many natural remedies, they work, but the problem basically is big pharmaceutical industries can't make money out of a herb. They can't make money out of something that defies dissection, they can't make money out of something that can be restricted or reduced down to a single component. It's a traditional remedy. It needs to be used in a traditional form. And if it has dropped from popularity, never with me, but seemingly by others, if it has dropped from popularity, my opinion is that that says more about the way in which Big Farm and those associated with it, its profitability and the users of pharmaceuticals, Many of them would not like to see a remedy like this develop because there's no money in it for them. Now, mm-hmm. that's a radical opinion, and I'll probably get shot down for saying it, but that's my view. And Daryl has rung in on 49216216 from Torryburn, and uh, your question's about prostate cancer, Darren. Yes, that's yeah. right. Hello, Daryl. Good afternoon, Dennis. Um, I was one of the fortunate ones. Um, I had my prostate removed, but it was nerve sparing. Oh, yes. Uh, um, that was 2016. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm just wondering if there is um, any natural remedy to help, like, with blood flow. And I do have still have a little bit of leakage, not much, you know. Just, um, yeah, I'm just wondering if there was anything out there. Um are you are you hinting at that you might have some erectile problems? Yes. Okay. Yes. I thought so. Look, it's it's a not an easy condition to treat, and anything I say um, shouldn't be taken as a certainty. Um, yes. What yep. what I would suggest is that there's a couple of things that might be useful, to, uh, particularly in discussing with your GP or your health manager. These things are not conventional drugs; they can't do you any harm. Uh, the way in which they work is controversial. But, for instance, in, in, in some of the literature, the use of the herb ginkgo biloba shows some credibility, uh, particularly as far as blood flow uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the penis. So there might be some virtue in doing a bit of Googling on using a correct dosage of a preparation of ginkgo biloba in a standardised form. Look at the literature, I'm making no promises, but in some of the literature that I've read, 
there's a case to be made for the fact that ginkgo, which seems to improve uh, circulation to so many regions of the body, may be useful in this particular condition uh, in improving erection. The other thing is the most popular herb used for male erectile dysfunction and low libido, the most popular herb used in, in, in Western herbalism is a herb called Damiana, D-A-M-I-A-N-A, Damiana. Now, that's a herb that can be purchased in, in encapsulated form. Uh, ginkgo comes more in a tableted form, and there are top-level uh, products of both of those. With reference to the ginkgo, however, uh, if you're going to take it, you should run it past your GP because there are some uh, situations where ginkgo could clash with other med- medication that you might be taking. But uh, the... I'm, on no, I'm on no other medication. Okay. As I said, I was one okay. of the, okay. like, the lucky ones, okay. so to speak. Well, well, that's good. I would still uh, raise it with your GP. He's your prime therapist. Uh, yep. but, but those two herbs are very, very safe. I make no promises. They're not expensive. You do not need a script. In your situation, it might be worthwhile giving a go. So the last one was... Damiana. D-A-M-I-A-N-A. Damiana. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you for your call, Daryl. 49216216 is the number to get your question through to Dennis Stewart today on Health Naturally. And Richard has rung that number from Corlett. Richard, a question you have about lower bowel stimulant, yes? Yes. Uh, hi, Dennis. Hello, Richard. I was driving over to Cessnock recently and I heard you talking about it. Oh, yes, And yes. so I called into your uh, lady at Cessnock yes. and got some. Yes. And I'd have to say it's fantastic. It really mm. has worked well. Yes. The only thing I, I wondered is it had a phrase on it, uh, something like uh, prolonged use may be uh, bad for your health this or is... something like that. And I wonder yep, if you could yep. explain that to okay. me, please. On, on many herbal products these days, uh, cautious remarks are made uh, to cover particularly any possibility of a reaction to the product being used. Uh, Herbs such as black cohosh, for instance, uh, have to have uh, a precaution placed on them because there are one or two incidents around the world where people have been hurt with that herb. And there are many other that I can speak of with reference to the lower bowel stimulant, which, by the way, is an excellent product which, which I've used myself for many, many years. Um, it's got a precaution there basically to say to people, look, if you have a bowel problem and if you suffer from, particularly from, from, from constipation, you need to get that investigated to be sure that there is no sinister reason as to why this is so. Many, many cases of bowel dysfunction, however, are, are functional and uh, constipation can be associated with fairly innocuous conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome. The, the precaution on that is basically to say, look, this is not to be abused. It can be used safely, but use it cautiously because you need to know if there is something there that's causing this problem. Now, having said that, having said that, as one who has used this preparation for a very long period of time, I mean, a very long period of time, and that's why I vouch for its efficacy. I can assure you there has been no downside to it in my experience or the many, many other patients that I would have recommended that to. So I I put that in perspective. Um, You need to just take on board what the company is trying to say there. 
this is a good product, but don't abuse it and find out what is causing the problem to ensure that it's relevant to it. Look, thank you very much, Dennis. That's most reassuring. Thank you, Richard. Lemon Tree Passage is where he's from. And, Mark, your question is about groin rash. Yes. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dennis. How are you? Good. Are you a, tr- are you a truck driver, are you, Mark? No, no, no. Oh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm a personal carer. Okay, because you, you usually find, or well, you don't usually find, you can sometimes find these so-called groin uh, rashes in, in people that sit in sedentary occupations that are hot and humid and develop the condition, which sometimes goes under the name of jock itch. You've probably heard yeah, it. I okay. That, yeah. okay. Now, with your, with your rash, the first thing I'm obliged to ask is, have you let your GP have a look at it? Yeah, and um, he can't see anything there. And, and it's funny, because every time after I have it, or while I'm having a shower, yes. if, I have, if, if hot water goes on to my scrum and around my groin, it actually it's... seems to irritate it. Okay. The cold water seems to, to um, go support you. Know, no, it's, I don't, it's not as painful. Okay. Now, has th- there is no uh, indications of there being any uh, fungal disease? No. Okay. No. So what you'd say is you've got a rash there, your GP's had a look at it, but he doesn't seem to make much of it. What, okay. I'd, what I'd suggest you do, there is a little cream that I developed called the GA cream. GA, okay. Yeah. Now, the GA cream is your first line of attack in this situation as far as I'm concerned using my sorts of things. It's not a popular cream and you'd only get it from my rooms in Alma Road, New Lambton, but it is, it is a very popular preparation that I developed probably 30 years ago. It looks like cortisone, it smells like cortisone, it acts like cortisone, but it isn't cortisone. It's based, interestingly, on an extract of licorice. And the active principle, the active principle is known as glycotinic acid or glycorrhizin. I would give that a go. It's not expensive. It would probably mean you just have to come down to uh, New Lambton to pick it up. But I would give, I, I would give that a go and see how that went. No problem. Thank you for that. Okay, Mark. Okay, thanks for your call, Mark. And uh, will it help if you just eat licorice, Dennis? Uh, we could go into that topic in great detail, <laughs> but I doubt whether it would tend to help orally treating skin conditions around the around the groin, Jane. I think you said that uh, to take the mickey out of me, Jane. My, I wouldn't do that, Dennis. Four nine two one six two one six. Judith's rung that number from Valentine, and Judith, you're talking about bruising and varicose veins and arnica. Hello, yes, Judith. Please, How are Dennis, you? I spoke, good, thanks. How are you? I'm well indeed, Judith. I spoke to you before Christmas mm-hmm. about the bruising from yes. veins, and you said, I told your doctor, said Arnica and Arcana tablets. Yes. But you said not to take the tablets. Okay, look. That- Ar- Arnica should only be used orally in what's called a homeopathic form. That is, it should be used in a very diluted and tamed form. Arnica is not usually a herb that's prescribed. Uh, as oral medication because it does have some toxicity. When, it's, oh, okay. when it is used homeopathically, that toxicity has been largely uh, diluted and it becomes a, a, perhaps a safer way of doing it. So I never ever recommend Arnica to be used as oral medication in a crude form. However, um, Arnica is a very, very explicit and useful topical application, particularly for bruising conditions. 
Now, uh, and I say a topical application for bruising conditions so long as the skin has not been broken. Arnica should not be used uh, in op- on open wounds or where there's bleeding or where the skin has been damaged in a significant way. It can stimulate quite a significant reaction. It should only be used where the bruising is just typically bruising and is not associated with trauma. That way, Arnica can work pretty well. But again, again, as far as the actual ongoing experience of bruising and the, and the actual experience of varicose veins, I recommend, as you probably have heard me say, the ongoing chronic long-term use of substances known as bioflavonoids. Now, I I suspect listeners might think I push these things a little bit too hard, but if you look at the the information on bioflavonoids, particularly a leading one called Rutin, R-U-T-I-N, you will see why I'm so enthusiastic about recommending these harmless uh, natural substances derived from fruits, fruits and vegetables and herbs, why well, I'm so uh, keen to recommend them to, uh, for uh, venous conditions, particularly varicose veins. So I would be recommending a chronic use to address the varicosity condition with the, with the uh, bioflavonoids and a sensible use of arnica to address, uh, to address bruising, particularly where the skin has not been traumatised. Okay. Thanks very much, Dennis. Thank you, Judith. And thank you for your call, Judith. Uh, Debbie has rung in from Windale, 49216216. Debbie, you'd like to ask Dennis about glandular fever. Okay. Hello, Debbie. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Uh, well, indeed. Tell me something. Are you experiencing glandular fever, are you? No, it's my daughter. Yes. She's 20. She's got glandular fever. She's had it for over a year now. Okay. I've had her on probiotics, vitamin yeah. street. Eight, but it keeps on reoccurring. It's just okay. like nothing's okay. working. Okay. Um, what you need to do, uh, and fairly promptly, um, is to start to use a combination known as Astragalus 8. Yes, yeah, she's been using that, but uh, it's a combination one, is it? Astragalus 8 is a combination yeah. of eight Asian remedies uh, developed particularly to address recurring uh, viral infections or the symptoms associated with them. And as far as I'm concerned, a quiet perseverance with Astragalus 8, in my opinion, has given me the best results over many years in addressing a glandular fever that's recent and also a glandular fever that lingers particularly with the symptoms of, of chronic fatigue. She must persevere with the uh, use of the Astragalus 8 formula uh, which you can yeah. e- easily get from where you are. Uh, but well, she's all... been taking that. Yeah, she's but... been taking that, now, yeah. The other thing I would say is it must be taken in the right dosage and, yeah. in, and in the right form. And I'll not elaborate too much on that because it would get too technical, but you're, yeah. wel- you're welcome to ring my rooms on 49562321. 4956, can you repeat that again? 49562321. Yep, got it. And that they will, uh, my rooms will help you with the information regarding the preparation and the recommended dosage. Thank you for your call, Debbie, and I uh, hope that sets you on the right track. It's 19 to 1 to a new RFM's Health Naturally. And uh, Dennis, perhaps we might just start mm. a little talking a little bit about folk medicine. You mentioned oh, folk medicine. Yeah, lovely. I look, I love that term, folk medicine, uh, uh, because. 
what listeners need to know, and in fact may already do know, is that folk medicine has been one of the, uh, how can I call it, one of the greatest ways of in fact developing serious medical treatments for serious conditions. By folk medicine we mean uh, medicine that was developed by people at the grassroots. People frequently with no medical training discovering something that worked well for them. Probably, Jane, the most um, well-known example of folk medicine is the discovery of foxglove, the English herb, and my wife, in fact, grows it in the hunter there, foxglove, uh, botanically known as digitalis. Um, It's not well known by listeners that foxglove was being used um, in the 18th, was it the 18th or 19th century, by uh, ordinary country people in Shropshire. And they were using an infusion of foxglove, that is a water-based preparation of foxglove, to treat what they referred to as dropsy. And dropsy is an old term referring to the massive build-up of fluid, particularly around the peripheries, associated with congestive cardiac failure. And they found that by brewing up foxglove leaves, very, very frequently the water would dissipate and the heart would function more effectively. And that wasn't um, discarded. There was an English doctor uh, who didn't, wasn't sceptical wasn't sceptical, and and in defence of, of many of my medical colleagues, many of them are not sceptics, as many people think. Doctors are not necessarily sceptics. Withering was his name, Dr William Withering, an English GP that took the trouble to go to the village where this was being used, saw the benefits of foxglove being used by these people, and began in his own, in his own practice to treat what was called dropsy, or what we call today congestive cardiac failure, with this preparation and was amazed that the result was forthcoming in patients that would have died had they not received this treatment. Congestive cardiac failure is is a very, very serious medical condition. So from William Withering's work and subsequent documentation of it, he made popular the use of foxglove or digitalis in modern medicine, and there would be patients of many doctors in this town still using preparations of digitalis in modern pharmaceutical form. It's not used these days as it was years ago, even up until before the Second World War. It was still being used in a simple galenical preparation as a, as a tincture. Uh, these days it comes as a tableted pharmaceutical form under various names which many patients would probably relate to, uh, digoxin and things like that. So there's an example, probably the most famous, famous example, of where folk medicine, ordinary people discovering something that worked for them, changed the face of medicine. We owe a lot to folk medicine we could talk about it ongoingly. It's a fascinating topic. People have heard me talk on this program about the book entitled Folk Medicine by the American doctor, Dr. Jarvis. Now, that's a book that needs to be read by everyone. It's not readily available, but it can be sourced. Folk Medicine by Dr. Jarvis, who again, as a young GP functioning in Vermont, in the rural parts of Vermont, noticed that many of his patients were using apple cider vinegar and molasses, both on themselves 
and particularly on their animals, and was amazed at the cures that these people were achieving, particularly on their animals. And he took it seriously and wrote this book giving examples of how these two simple substances used by these people had a credible possibility. Folk Medicine by Jarvis is one of the more modern renditions of people in the countryside coming up with remedies, looked at then seriously by medical people with an open mind who have seen the validity of them and have recommended the use of it. The popular use of apple cider vinegar today probably owes a lot to Dr Jarvis's work and the writing of his book, Folk Medicine. And we will get to Maureen's call in just a moment, but we're talking about folk medicine, something you're working on at the moment. Yes, look, I just wanted to elaborate on on this a little bit. Um, Already, I hope, listeners this morning have picked up on the fact that it is from tradition, and particularly from folk medicine, that many medical breakthroughs have occurred and many pharmaceuticals have been developed. Uh, It's not probably well known, that two substances used to treat uh, cancer, vincristin and vinblastin, are two alkaloids from the well-known herb periwinkle, which grows in people's gardens. And it was largely developed again as a result of observing the popular, popular use of this particular herb. But I'm still in these uh, closing days of my professional career obsessed with the idea of still finding within the plant world agents that can work in lessening or working against the activity of cancer. I know that's a big call, but already from the plant world, as I've said, we've got some substances that work well in various cancers derived from the plant world. So I'm almost obsessed that before I finally (laughs) quit, that I find something that can lift the game as far as helping people battle this wretched disease. And I'll tantalise listeners by saying that out of Africa, if we use that term, out of Africa uh, is coming, or out of Africa there is a herb which is known in South Africa as cancer bush or cancer tree. Now this herb is not well known in Western herbalism and it was only as a result of receiving a complimentary copy of a beautiful text on herbal medicine from a couple of South African authors that in studying it I came across this herb popularly used in South Africa by the white population, the black population and the coloured population. Its name is cancer tree and it is used there in some way to address cancer and that's all I will say. Its botanical name is Sutherlandia frutescens. It grows relatively easily even in this country. I'm doing a bit of work on Sutherlandia frutescens and I would like to think that folk medicine, the application of folk medicine knowledge associated with Sutherlandia frutescens may in some way validate the way in which this herb, if you like, known as cancer bush or cancer tree in South Africa, might have some use in helping people fight cancer. If I could achieve some uh, benefit in demonstrating the folk medicine tradition is true and possible, that would be the climax of my career. And on Health Naturally, uh, Maureen has rung in from Waratah. Hello, Maureen. And your nephew has enlarged lymph nodes in his neck. Yes. Hi, 
Hi. Um, hi, um, Dennis. Hello, Thank Maureen. you so very much for having this program. I just, my husband and I just love it. We've got a young six-year-old yes. um, nephew in the family yes. who yes. has always had one large inlet yes. lymph nodes for years. Yes. But over the Christmas break, he developed several enlarged lymph mm -hmm. nodes. My niece took him to the doctors. Yes. Doctors now have actually decided to say that he's got the glandular fever virus, the yes. Epstein virus. Virus, yes, yes, yes. Um, so they put him on a stack of antibiotics, which has made a difference with the glands going down. She's still got a scan done the other day. Yes. And one of the glands, one of the nodes, are still quite large. Okay. Look, in as much that you're being treated by your GP, and rightly so, I would run the recommendations that I'm going to mention past your GP. Uh, they should not clash with your GP's prescription of the antibiotic, but the approach here would be to use agents which have a useful immunosupportive role and are popularly used to address virally-based conditions such as glandular fever. Now, you've heard me talk on this program over the years about the Astragalus 8 combination. I have treated and still consider the best treatment for glandular fever, particularly in adults, to be associated with the prompt and ongoing use of that preparation known as Astragalus 8. I brought it into the country probably 30 years ago. I gave the first lectures on it at Ormond College in Melbourne um, to a group of, of graduate students that started the Astragalus 8 um, revolution in this country. It would be one that I would be immediately thinking of and I would uh, suggest you run it past your GP. I can't see any problems in your using it, but you owe it to your medical managers to run it past them. The other thing is, particularly with, with kids, there is, no better, yeah, there is no better herb, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in my opinion, than the herb Echinacea in addressing kids. It was always known as the kid's remedy. And many, many years ago in my practice, when I started in practice in Gosford and my patients were basically uh, kids um, associated with the young marrieds that had retreated from Sydney to the Central Coast, I saw Echinacea work marvels in kids that were getting recurrent glandular conditions running from tonsillitis through to other conditions. Uh, yeah. Echinacea should not be shunned. It is an immunosupportive agent. If you look at the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, you will find it's defined as an antiviral agent. Those two preparations, perhaps start with echinacea, give it a go, and also mention or perhaps access the Astragalus 8 formula, depending on how you go with echinacea. But please do the right thing. Run it past your GP. And thank you for your call, Maureen. Just one more quick call, and Mark has rung in. Mark, you've got some information for Dennis. Well, not actually information for Dennis. Um, when he was talking about that cancer tree, yes. um, I feel sure I've got a bone if you want a cutting. Okay. Um, I would be happy to see it because I have a, um, uh, a, an excellent photograph of the actual herb in, in colour, so I would, mm -hmm. be, I would be able to immediately... Um, Has it got biggish leaves? Uh, well, I haven't got it in front of me here. It does have, if you like, a, a, a reddish golden type of flower head. Well, mine's never flowered yet. Okay. Well, it would, uh, I suspect it might not be Sutherlandia frutescens, but look, mm. Mark, I'd be happy to receive it. Either send it to my rooms at 39 Alma Road, New Lambton, or drop it in. 
And what it, then, yeah. then what I would do, I would give it to one of my colleagues who's an expert mm. in what's called chromatography. And what that yeah. means is that you take a vegetable substance, say a herb, and you test it chemically with either thin layer chromatography mm. uh, or other techniques which will give you, if you like, a, a, a photograph in chemical forms of what's in the particular specimen. So for Sutherlandia frutescens, for instance, there would be a universal um, plate, if you like, that would be used for identification purposes. So it would be easily done to validate or verify that it is Sutherlandia frutescens. And if it were, it would make me very happy because it would mean that some of my concerns are no longer concerns because it's already growing here. Well, someone actually, when I saw it, they called it the African cancer tree. It sounds very much like it, and I'd love to get hold of it so that we can do the research on it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>